Hi everyone, it's Sarah. This message is for those of you out there who, while listening to Fade of Mainz or reading romance yourselves, have thought, mm, I wonder if I could do that. The answer is absolutely, you can do that. And there's no better time for you to write a romance novel than November, which is National Novel Writing Month, a time when writers all across the world get together and try to write 50,000 words on their novel in one month. Many romance novelists who we love, including our dear friend Alexis Daria, have written their first romance novels during NaNoWriMo. And if that's something that you are interested in doing, you can join me on October 23rd from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time for a virtual class called Start Your Romance Novel Today. It's a very comprehensive beginner class that is a soup-to-nuts overview of how you write a book. Uh, particularly a romance novel. We'll talk character, conflict, we'll talk plotting, we'll talk outlining, and most importantly, we'll talk how to actually get the words on the page. The class will be available all November long, so you can watch it again and again if you want to, and you can revisit all the resources which you'll receive by email and during the class itself. For more information, you can visit show notes and click on the link there or go directly to my website, sarahmcclain.net, and select class to register and learn more. I hope to see you there. Sarah, bring me the big knife. (laughs) I won't do it, Jen. I won't do it. Poor Chrissy. We're going to get to Chrissy. We're going to get to Chrissy. Happy 200th anniversary, Jen. Our 200th episode. We're vampires. Look, a bride without a head, a wolf without a foot. So everybody, on our very first episode, before we were really even friends, I mean, let's be honest, like we started this on a wing and a prayer. Yes, right. We had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea we'd need a producer. Welcome everyone to Faded Bates. (laughs) I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And it is our 200th episode. It is. Some of you weirdos have been with us for all 200 of them. <laughs> That's a lot. It's, it's wild. It's right fifth, five years later. Wild. So yeah, I'm sorry. I cut you off though, because now we're an old married couple. Yes, right. Well, of course. Of course. So I was saying, okay, so today we are going to be talking about the movie Moonstruck, uh, our favorite foundational text in the genre. <laughs> Agreed. I mean, on the rewatch, I was like, I don't even understand. Like, this is the this is the lesson in romance: how to write it. A perfect, perfect romance. And the reason that Eric suggested we should do this, and he's been telling us this for a while, is because on our very first episode, which, as Sarah was pointing out, we like barely knew each other. We did not text each other seven hundred times a day. We were talking about essentially introducing the idea of this very short podcast we had an idea for one episode each for this. Immortals After Dark series we liked so much. And we were talking about Lachlan. <laughs> right. Episode one was going to be, or no, the episode two, because we were going to yeah. give you all time to read the book. But episode two was going to be A Hunger Like No Other, the first book in the Immortals After Dark series. Featuring a werewolf. Who rips off his own leg to find his lady love. <laughs> and I 
said to Sarah, have you ever seen Moonstruck? And honestly, go, we'll have to go back and listen to that audio. I'm surprised she didn't fire me at that moment. She was like, have I ever seen Moonstruck? What the fuck? First of all, <laughs> I, I was born in the United States to an Italian man. <laughs> there was not a day of my life after seeing this movie at the age of like nine that I did not fancy that one day I would be share at the Metropolitan Opera. I, never happened. <laughs> that this movie came out. I I looked 1987. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I don't actually think I saw it in the movie theater. I would have been 14. I think I was probably a little too young to think it was like I remember it coming out, but I think I saw it later, probably on DVD. Yeah, on TV. On TV. I mean, I will tell you, yes. this was one of my dad's favorite movies. Oh. Um, I think for lots of reasons, we'll get into the Italian piece, I yes. I'm expect, because I have lots to say about it. I hope so. My dad was Italian from Italy, and not, you know, he did not, he emigrated here when he was in his 20s. And so, I think, like, even though this is a distinctly Italian-American sort of community, there is something about big cities and the the feeling of the culture in a big city where you can have a huge community of people who all speak Italian, say, that really resonated with him. And so I have seen this movie. I mean, I, I Eric was shocked by how well I know all the all the lines of this movie. I mean, I've seen this movie many, many times. And what's fascinating about it is when you meet people who love Moonstruck, often they have a story about someone else in their life who loved Moonstruck. Mm. My Kristen Dwyer, who is my publicist, I think she would be very happy for me to tell this story. Her grandmother watched this movie every night. Oh. And her grandmother lived in her house, and they could hear, you know, at the end there's that um, Johnny's plane is coming back from Sicily, and there's the, the shot of the plane landing at JFK, and... Kristen pointed out to me that in the original, like DV, the original VHS version, that scene is extra loud. Like the plane is oh, so okay. loud, like the sound mixing was off, and so they could hear it, and they knew that within like you know fifteen minutes, <laughs> the movie would be over, and it would be time for Grandma to go to bed. And like so, this is when we talk about like foundational texts yeah. of many, many people's lives. I think a lot of people who work and love and read romance, this is one of them. So I think the other thing, if you're a younger listener, that you might not realize is back in the day of, like, kind of basic cable, you would, like, sort of channel surf, and you had, you know, however, and you just were like, well, what's on, right? And this was just, like, one of those movies that was, like, sort of, sort of always on. And so you could always just, like, drop in. And it was also one of those movies, and there were a couple of them, and a lot of them, for some weird reason, seemed to be Nick Cage movies for me, like Con Air, (laughs) where, like, you're like, oh, I guess I just have to watch this now. I'm sorry. Like, the rules are the rules, right? Like, (laughs) Moonstruck is on. I must just stop from wherever it is and watch. (laughs) There's something about this that's so watchable. Oh, completely. Like, no matter what character, every character is perfectly cast. Yes, and there are so many things about this movie that, like, really deliver on the romance. Oh, yes. So, yes, Eric's been saying we should do it for 200 episodes because <laughs> we said, we talked about it on the first episode. And then we talked about it in A Hunger Like No Other because Lachlan chews off his own foot. Yeah. And it's sort of impossible to imagine that Cressley Cole did not also love 
moonstruck. <laughs> I kept thinking how rom-coms that came after it have, like, scenes that feel like homages to Moonstruck, right? So I was thinking about, like, the opera scene in Pretty Woman. Yes, right? me too. And it feels like it has to be saying, like, Moonstruck. Hey, remember when they went to the opera in Moonstruck? Yeah. Also, and I I, th- I think it's obviously, like, a big ethnic family, but um, yeah. my big fat Greek wedding. Sure feels similar in a lot of vibe, even though that mm-hmm. bo- that movie is a lot about a fish out of water. Like, the John Corbett character ha- has no knowledge of Greek culture, but, like, it's hard to imagine that the woman who wrote that, um, I can't remember her name right now, didn't grow up looking at Moonstruck and going, oh, I see myself in Absolutely. that. And, you know, the other thing I was thinking about while I was watching it, my friend, Louisa Edwards, who mm-hmm. is a brilliant writer, was also an editor for many years. And I remember her telling me at some point, you know, years and years ago, that the best way to make a character universal or a story universal is to make it incredibly specific. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, I think that's true when we think about all the books that we have loved over the years as as part of Fate of Mates. Like, so many of them are so specific. Right. And I think that's the other reason why this movie just lands right. Because it it doesn't matter that if you don't speak Italian, it's okay. That old man who never speaks a word of English, <laughs> right? You know exactly what he's doing with those dogs on the on the pier. Yeah. Oh, I agree. That's actually brilliant. And I just think it's it's a mark of, you know, obviously a magic there's just some magic in this in this cauldron. But also it should be said it was written by an Irish New Yorker. <laughs> sure. Don Patrick Shanley, who also wrote Doubt, which is about an Irish Catholic priest and a nun and a possible sex scandal. So like this is not like his his specialty is not like the light froth like yeah exactly but I think like again a kind of like dude who grew up in New York City child of immigrants in an Irish family right and like this again kind of immigrant experience this Italian immigrant experience in New York City it's initially seems pretty weird yeah. that he would have written about this world but. It just all clicks in this really magical way. He's also a Pulitzer Prize winner, so... Yeah, I was going to say, that also suggests that, you know, <laughs> if you have a really great person doing the job. <laughs> I mean, I, t- it was, I was thinking about it when you were talking about how many times... It's impossible for me to guess how many times I've seen this movie. So many, though, right? Because you know every, every moment yes. of it. Yes. Except for that one weird moment that I think my brain always chops out, which is when she gets home from buying the dress and then pours a <laughs> glass of wine and then, like, some smooth yes. jazz. <laughs> well, I was like, this is also literally the longest day ever. If you have ever gone yes. to the salon to get your hair colored, that is hours she and hours. Went to, <laughs> went to the salon for hours, came home for, like, a— Bought a dress, went shopping. Came home for, like, a, a little interlude of, like, lighting the fire. I was and- like— it has to get to the opera. Has to get from Brooklyn Heights, which is where they live, to Midtown to the opera for like I assume curtain call at eight. Yeah, right. I, at that point, I was like, "Wait, there is no time for casual <laughs> smooth jazz listening." I know. I thought the same thing. Meanwhile, can we start actually with Brooklyn Heights? Because I would like to tell you, nineteen Cranberry Street. 
I really tried to like pay attention. That's a real place. That house is real. It is for sale, by the way, everybody. It is sold. It's oh. sold. I looked and at do you it know last who night. Bought it. I looked at it last night. It was on the market for eleven million dollars. It was purchased for eleven million dollars yeah. by Amy Schumer. <sighs> and listen, that's nice. <laughs> like it or not, with Amy Schumer, and I like it because when uh, the draft of Jobs was really was leaked and. I went immediately from my desk to a protest in the city that day. Yeah. Amy Schumer also went immediately from her desk to that same protest and gave a, like, rousing speech that was not funny. And I'm for it. So Good for her. But listen, you know what I love about it? You only buy the Moonstruck house if you love Moonstruck. Moonstruck. That's what I thought, Because if you're a celebrity, like, that's a celebrity house. Sure. I mean, people like me... See 19 Cranberry Street when they, you know, are in Brooklyn Heights and they're like, that's the Moonstruck house. Let's take a picture. Nobody who is a celebrity should want to live in that house. But I bet she's in there talking about three types of pipe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, so, okay. Are we assuming everybody has, like, seen this? Should we do, like, a... Well, I just figure we're going to do what we did with Ted Lasso, which is, like, we're just going to... Start a recap. (laughs) But I do... I'm glad you brought up 19 Cranberry Street. Because I watched this with Eric, with Eric. So everybody knows I live in Brooklyn. I have lived in Brooklyn, or you live, in, you know, I live in New York City. I live in Brooklyn, and I have lived in Brooklyn for twenty-two years. And la- the other night when we were watching Moonstruck, uh, the establishing shot of this movie is the Brooklyn Bridge, as is the, the which is the establishing shot of, like, every movie in New York City. Right. right? The <laughs> Brooklyn Bridge with the skyline of Manhattan behind it, right? So there is, like, kind of a shot. There is one shot where you can see the Twin Towers, like, you know. But the true establishing shot, the final, the one that it lingers on before we are, like, dumped into Loretta's life, is the Brooklyn Bridge, but it's the reverse view, you are looking at, and Eric was like, what am I looking at? And I was like, you're Brooklyn. looking at the Brooklyn skyline, like from Manhattan. And I don't know. It's just a really very, like, it's a lovely moment. It's just proof that this movie makes so many very specific choices. Because yeah, right. this, this isn't a movie about Manhattan. Yeah, although I will say I also wrote down the Twin Towers, right? Like seeing that is like a real, a real moment. Well, there's um all that story about how um Friends had an established like in the Friends montage or mm-hmm. was, I think it was Friends, there was a, a shot of the Twin Towers and immediately after nine eleven they re-edited all of the episodes to take that out. Wow, I didn't remember that because it is sort of a it's ooh. jarring, yeah. But here's my question: so obviously that dates it in the sense that it's like sure, what are those buildings? Although again, fascinating. Like for you and I, they mean something, but for a lot of people now, they don't mean anything, right? But one of the things that I was thinking about, and Eric and I were talking about it, is it feels like a um, some kind of magical realism going on in this book, in this movie, movie yeah. right? Because it it's like almost out of time. Yes, I would agree for sure, right? Like it's like it felt very – no, and then I found myself thinking like maybe New York in the 80s or Brooklyn in the 80s still felt this way. Mm. But sort of like the whole – and. Here's the thing, and we've talked about this before, like, as city people. What I think people don't realize if you don't live in a big city is how living in a big city feels like a neighborhood. 
like you, there's a restaurant where everybody knows you and there's the small grocery store where right that's owned by this little nice couple and mm-hmm. you know there's the hairdresser who's been like dying to get your gray out forever or whatever mm-hmm. right so i mean but it but regardless of that this still feels almost like 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 there's a sprinkle of stardust over all of it right yeah and it feels like Without the, you know, obviously there's the scene in the airport where right. <laughs> I put a curse on that plane, um, the, where like they can go to the gate. Yes. Well, and I found myself at some point sort of keeping like a list of things that were funny that way. Like this, okay, not only could you go to the gate, but this was before all suitcases had wheels. Yeah. Like every time he picks up the suitcases and walks with them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, people probably don't even remember that suitcases. Like, I remember the first time suitcases had wheels, and you're like, well, this is smart. What the fuck, you know? <laughs> or, like, the fact that he bitches about, like, the cab ride being $25. And I was like, sir, come on, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, the fo- you know, obviously no cell phones, the phones, right? And so it's like she puts on that dress, which is a very 80s kind of prom dress. Yeah. But, like... Then when she's, like, kicking that can down the street in those, like, beautiful high heels, it just feels so magical. Yeah. And that's one of the things I want to talk about kind of over the course of the whole movie. I think this was the first time, obviously, I've never watched this movie thinking, like, I'm going to analyze this movie. (laughs) Right. It was different to watch it this time. One of the things I was, I kept thinking about was, like, this moon and this, like, it it just feels, like you said, stardust, but it's, like, it feels like there's magic in this movie. Always. Like, the moon is, like, controlling all these characters in, like, a really fascinating way. Like, everything is about this, like, full moon, this wolf, this, like, (laughs) you know, the kind of wolf in all of us, the way that we find ourselves and each other. Um, And it's just... It's it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. (sighs) It is. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Grand Central, publishers of Helena Greer's Season of Love. Okay, this is adorable. Miriam Blum is an artist who is a little estranged from her family, but she discovers that her beloved great aunt Cass has passed and left her part owner of Carrigan's, her Jewish-run Christmas tree farm. (laughs) (laughs) So Miriam's not so sure about any of this, but she is going to go home. She's going to sit Shiva, uh, not talk to her parents. She doesn't have to. And then leave this farm and her family behind. Except when she gets there, she realizes that Cass's farm is at risk of going under, which means that in order to support her beloved aunt, she is going to have to help turn it around. Which means she's going to have to work with the grumpy manager of this Christmas tree farm, Noelle Northwood, who wants nothing to do with Cass's great niece. But uh, I bet she's going to figure out that she wants something to do with her. Listen, grumpy (laughs) manager of a Christmas tree farm. I've never heard of a better character ever. Perfect. A Jewish-run Christmas tree farm. This sounds like exactly the kind of book you want for the holidays this year. You can find out more about Season of Love by checking out Helena on Twitter and Instagram at Blum Again Curious or her website, HelenaGreer.com. Season of Love will be available in print, ebook, and audio. And thank you to Grand Central Publishing for sponsoring the episode. Okay, so go ahead. 
We've established the shot toward Brooklyn. You know what I thought would be really funny to sort of talk about this movie in terms of, like, tropes? Because I was like, this is insta-love. Flat-out romance novel, yeah. Oh, yeah, but I mean, flat-out. Marrying the wrong brother. Right. I mean, but, like, you know, the next morning when he's like, I'm in love with you. I was like, you have spent five minutes with her. And then I was well, like. Well, she said that, too. Right. <laughs> And then I was like, you know what, though? If this was a romance novel, I would be like, yes, of course. He fell in love with her the second he saw her, right? Yes. And so I I found, I found myself really – and I have not, like, explicitly tried to think about it that way before, but really, like, what are the – why are the – the ways that this sort of is, like, working on me. So Loretta Castorini-Clark <laughs> is 39 years old, and she is a widow. Yes. And she is a not a widow because her husband has suffered a long illness. <laughs> he got hit by a bus. <laughs> Bad luck. Her, I mean, it's not funny, but it is kind of funny. Like, how did he die? He got hit by a bus, yeah. right? Um, And so we meet her. Like, living her daily life. She is an accountant. She yeah. does the books. She's a bookkeeper. She, so we meet her, like, at a funeral parlor, and we meet her at a... The flower you know, shop. for a flower shop and a, um, you know, a, like a deli, an Italian deli owned by her aunt and uncle. And Loretta has had bad luck. That's what she believes. She believes she was born, yes. like, kind of an under, under an unlucky star. And... Uh, she, but... But more than that, she's just very no-nonsense. Oh, yeah. She's a really interesting character, right? She's great. Because you don't really expect that someone who is this no-nonsense then at the end is going to be, like, taken over by this, like, flight of fancy, like, falling in love with the, by right? the moon. By the yeah. moon, right? Like, the, one of my favorite parts of this movie is you kind of are like, okay, she's sort of no-nonsense but seems, like, generically kind, Right? Like, she's nice to people that she does business with. And then there's a part where <laughs> she's talking about her future mother-in-law. And she's like, I heard her on the fucking phone complaining. <laughs> like, she won't die. And I was like, Loretta. Is she dead yet? Yeah. No, she's but she, she's dying, but I could still hear, hear her for her, yeah. her, her mouth. I mean, so there's a way in which, like, there's these, like, breakthrough moments where we really see her, like, see her. And so she has been dating... This very nice man, played by Danny Aiello, the perfect cast. Oh, I should say Loretta is Cher, everyone. If you have lived under a rock and have no idea. And it's Cher. Cher's fucking perfect, and I want to come back to how perfect she is. Yeah, in every way. She's perfect in every way. So she's been dating a very nice man, Johnny Camareri. (laughs) Oh, I can't even. It's amazing. Johnny Camareri. Do we even know what Johnny does? We do, we don't. He no. just is. He's, he's just a man who wears a suit and a signet ring. Yes. But he's like a big kind of dumpling of a dude. Yeah, he's 42. He's like a mama's boy. There's a word for that in Italian. It's called mamone. <laughs> okay. And it means what it sounds like. <laughs> His mother? His is mother's not. dying in Sicily, in yeah. Palermo. And he has to go to her. Because that's what you do. I mean, that's what you do when your mom's sure. dying in Palermo. You go. You go. You so, go. but the night before, he takes Loretta out. She tells him not to order the special fish because it's too oily. <laughs> she's, I mean, she's perfect. They're already like an old married couple, yeah. right? She's like, don't do that. You're going to be on the plane. And then suddenly you're going to be, so your palms will be sweaty. You'll be, you'll be turning green. And he's like, oh, you take such good care of me. She does though. She yeah, this is right. Loretta. Loretta takes care of everybody around her. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he proposes, and it's a mess of a proposal. Oh, completely. Right? <laughs> She's like, you're what? 
Are you going to get down on your knees? <laughs> Meanwhile, the entire wait staff is like, why does she have him on his knees? He's in his good suit. <laughs> it's so perfect. God. And then she's like, where is the ring? He's like, I don't have a ring. The guy at the table next door is like, what do you mean you don't have a ring? I mean, perfect. It's just perfect. Well, in this whole part, I think this is where we really get her kind of treatise on her bad luck, right? Mm -hmm. So the first husband, she was just in love with him, and they went down and got married at City Hall. They didn't do things the right way. And so this, her insistence that he, like, do things the right way is because she is like, if we're doing this, I want to make sure there's, you know, good luck. But I will say the first time you watch it, you really do think, is she about to say no? Mm -hmm. And then there's this beautiful smile that comes over her face. Yes, yes, Johnny, I will marry you, right? But she wants it. She wants to do what she can to prevent the bad luck that cursed her the first time. So she takes him to the airport. (laughs) And (laughs) that moment with the old lady happens, which I honest to God think is like the great, one of the greatest moments where the (laughs) old lady's like, I put a curse on that plane. (laughs) You have somebody on this plane, I put a curse on that plane that it would die. It would fall into fall the into the ocean, yeah. Because my sister stole my man 50 years ago, and she told me today she didn't want she him. Never, yeah, she never wanted him. And so I put a curse on that plane, and Loretta says, I don't believe in curses, <laughs> which is fascinating because she does believe in bad luck. Yes, right. And the old lady says, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first moment that I want to say when I when I teach, like, be like romance. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I talk about and we've talked about it so many times is that every piece of a romance novel has to feed the romance yes. even if it doesn't seem like it's going to. Yes. And what's fascinating about this movie is there are so many scenes that seem as though right they don't interact with the romance. Or they're not really relevant to the romance, but they all are. And this old lady, this random old lady looking out the window at JFK saying, I put a curse on that plane because my sister stole my man (laughs) 50 years ago. Yeah. Right? Uh Which is exactly what is about to happen. Yeah. Now, right before Johnny gets on the plane, he says to her, I need you to do me a small favor, which is just a tiny, just fraction of a favor. go Go find my brother. And she's like, you have a brother? There's bad blood between us. There's bad blood between us. And I need you to just invite him to the wedding because, you know, I, I don't want this. You know, my mother's about to die. My brother, like, we, I need to fix this. She's just like, okay, fine. Then. Yeah, I love it. Classic romance reason. At one point, Eric was like, is this romance reasons? I was like, this yes. is romance reasons. Because <laughs> she doesn't say, what's the bad blood? No. She's not like, you have a brother? What on earth? None of this. <laughs> And there's no question, like, why is the brother... Eventually, she does say, why aren't you in Palermo? Yeah. And the brother's like, whose name is Ronnie? (laughs) Ronnie's like, my mom doesn't like me. Okay, fine. No problem. (laughs) I mean, of course. The thing I really appreciate about this story is, like, how multi-generational it is, right? Because there's three generations living in Loretta's house, right? There's her parents, Olympia Dukakis, one in Oscar for her role as her mother... Because she's perfect. Because she's perfect. Although Olympia Dukakis is like five years older than Cher when they filmed it or something. Oh, we looked this up too. Yes. Nick Cage was 21 or 22. Cher was like 40. And Olympia Dukakis, I think, was maybe in her early 50s. And then her great, her grandfather, right? So her dad's dad. Her father's father. 
And all his dogs. And And like six dogs. He was really ahead of his time as like a dog walker. Because I remember the first (laughs) time I saw that thinking like that is, what is this old man doing with these dogs? But now I feel like I can't go a day without seeing somebody walking like six or seven dogs. (laughs) And I know that it's a dog walker, but I feel like I just did. I had this moment. This is this man. I mean, they live in, look, 19 Cranberry, very big. Very Very large house. Yes. Because Cosmo. Is a plumber. uh, Loretta's dad is a plumber. And we'll get to that. (laughs) It was really interesting because she comes home and says, essentially, I'm engaged. And the reaction of the two parents is, again, so perfect for laying the groundwork for the future marriage, right? So she, before we, she goes to get Ronnie, she, she tells her parents first. Well, there is a perfect moment. There is a very Italian moment in here. This is another a moment that, like, I got a little teary because my dad died a few years ago. And so, like, I don't get these moments the same way anymore. But come, she comes in. Her dad is sitting in the chair in the living room. She says, Dad, I have news. And he says, he looks at her and he says, all right, let's go to the kitchen. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they all get, they get up. They go to the kitchen. <laughs> he sits down. Again. At, at capo di tavolo, which is the head of the table. And, like, he is prepared <laughs> in the dead of night. To hear, to hear the news. But you won't, like, all important information comes out of the kitchen. There's no, like. <laughs> I really did at that point. I was like, what? why no, are they moving? <laughs> they, we got to go to the kitchen. <laughs> and she, like, yeah, it's great. I, I did. So dad right? does not like Johnny. And no. listen, like, we don't Nobody really likes like Johnny, Johnny either. Yeah. I mean, he's just a big dumpling. Like, yeah. Ugh. Right. He's not and terrible. He's just not right for Loretta. So then dad says, we got to go wake up your mother. So they go and they wake up Olympia Dukakis and her first line, and it's the cl- it's like a classic grandma, it's a like classic old mom yeah. word, line is. Who's dead? Yeah, right? right. She's asleep and you're waking me up. I mean, that's probably what I'd say. And I'm not even that old. I'm like, who's dead? Uh, it's the establishing moment yes, of the movie. the I entire think, movie, yes. Where she says, do you love him, Loretta? No. Good. When you love them, they drive you crazy because they know they can. Yeah. It's just so unreal. Now, her father essentially is like, I'm not paying for the wedding, right? Like, he's just like. Because <laughs> he's cheap. Because he's, he's a cheap. plumber and he's rich and he owns a mansion in Brooklyn. Yes. But he's cheap. But he's cheap. And, and what is Olympia Dukakis's name? What's her character? Rita. No. Rita. Rose. 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 So Rose is like. You're rich as Croesus. Like, what are you talking about? You're not going to yeah, pay rich for the wedding. Roosevelt, yeah. Oh, rich as Roosevelt. That's right. And, but like at the same time, I was also fascinated, okay, as a, as a modern viewer where, and I have like, this like, a, I have low key like issues with a lot of the way TV portrays everyone as wealthy. I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but every house on TV is like, Gorgeous. And the thing that's really interesting about this house is, and at some point that changed, right? Because this isn't true. Like, I was like, I mean, she's sleeping in this beautiful, like, carved wooden bed. But I was like, what size bed is that? <laughs> like, how are they both going to fit in there? Well, and it's all old. Like the, Yes. The, it's And this is the thing about city houses, right? Like, row houses mm-hmm. like this one. In cities all across America, I would assume, right? Yeah. Is, like. This is an old house. It was built in the probably the late 1800s. You know, it has, like, wallpaper from maybe the early 1900s still on the walls. 
All the furniture is like, you know, a little Your grandma's house, yeah. Everything has a doily on it. This is of the time when, I mean, for God's sake, my mom loves a doily. And like, I don't own a single, that's not true. I have a big box of doilies, but what am I going to put them on? Right. And why? Your tables and then lamps on top of them. That's how. (laughs) That's what you do. (laughs) No, I like that too. It's like a little shabby. Yeah, right. So like they have this big house, but it's not. No, but it's not a show place. Like Loretta buys a beautiful dress to go to the Mets. That is not what Loretta, right. like, would ever buy right. for herself. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just was, like, really fascinated by, like, oh, yeah, this was back in the 80s when it – before the time when even people who claim to be poor in the show are living in show places. So Loretta doesn't love Johnny. No. Oh, but she does say something very sweet, which is, but I like him a lot. Yeah, right. He's a nice man. He's a nice man. But either way, the next morning, as – as one does, she goes out on her errand to find Ronnie Camerari. <laughs> and he is. Wait, listen. He's a baker. He's a baker. She goes into a. She goes into the. Ba- so listen, Camerari Brothers Bakery or Camerari Bakery. Every day when I take my daughter to school, we go past really a, a big sign. That says Camerary Brothers Bakery. Wow. And we do not go through Brooklyn Heights. We go, like, this is on a on a road that this is not a picturesque, right. like, street in New York City. But uh, I, I will take a picture. We will put it in. It'll be the image. Yeah. For, for um, this part of the, the episode. So you can see it. But... This is, but they, they, it is a very, like, it is a corner bakery in Brooklyn and very sweet. And it has the ovens in the basement. She's like, I got to see Ronnie. And the girl at the counter, Chrissy, is kind of (laughs) like, Chrissy's a real future dark romance fan, by the way. (laughs) That's what I found myself thinking because she, you know, goes down. And Loretta, I think one of the things I liked about this is she has no idea what she's walking into. No, but she's loyal yeah. And she said she was going to do this thing. So I'm going to go do it. This is like an errand to be ticked off, just like, you know, funeral guys' taxes. And there, <laughs> in front of an open <laughs> oven, <laughs> flames shadowing his b- glistening sweat body, <sighs> is the youngest Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Nicolas Cage before he had veneers. Well, actually, there's a note about that te- those teeth. Those two, his two front teeth, he had taken out because he was method acting in his prior movie. What? And he was like, take out my two front teeth so that, because the character was missing two front teeth. I mean, Nicolas Cage, I have a lot of thoughts, but <laughs> um, anyway, there he is. Yeah. Looking kind of like, he's like pretty much a greaser. Yeah. And let me tell you something. In no way is this man like an attractive man. But the moment you see him, like... Yeah, well, he's... It's like pheromones come out of your television somehow. It's something about Nicolas Cage. His jawline in this movie, his face, especially when he's at the Met later, you're like, I just found myself really, like, looking at it. That's a handsome man. (laughs) Anyway. It's because you're... You find... You find uh, Ronnie Camerari... Yeah, sure. ...really appealing. Yeah, Totally. It's a strange thing. So anyway, um, <laughs> Loretta's like, I'm here for your brother. At no point does she say, I am mm-hmm. marrying your brother. Mm-hmm. 
But she's like, I'm here for your mother, your brother. He He's getting married. He wants you to come to the wedding. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he tells the story. He says, what's wrong can never be made right. And then she's like, you're an animal. You're an animal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what, so what he shows her is that his hand, he has like a wooden hand, I guess, because he lost his hand, right? And he blames Johnny for it. Because, and the story is nonsensical. Sure. I mean. Here's a man who is giving a romance reasons explanation for their blood feud, right? So he explains the story. Yes. Right? He's like, I, my brother Johnny came in. I was getting married. My brother Johnny came in to the bakery. He asked for a loaf of bread sliced. I put the loaf of bread in the slicer. I was looking at my brother, and I sliced <laughs> my hand, right? And again, tragic, but also, like, what is happening? And, and Loretta's like... And Loretta's like, but that's not... His what? fault. That's, he didn't... What? I'm not... And then... I don't care. I ain't no freaking monument to justice. I lost my hand. I lost my bride. Johnny has his hand. Johnny has his bride. You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away, and forget? And she's like, yes, dumbass. And all, everybody watching is fine, is like, obviously, Ronnie has been terribly wronged. <laughs> well, so this is where Chris, so right then he's like, Chrissy, Chrissy bring, Greek right? chorus here. Yeah, right. Bring me the big knife. And she's like refusing to do it. This is the girl at the thing. And then she's sort of talking to her coworker about how, Oh, just how this is what I was I like. I am in love with this man. Yeah, right. He's so tortured, and I just, you know, I know that I'm the one who can. For five years, I yes. love this man, and I haven't told him because he could not possibly love anyone else after, after he this. Lost. Yeah, all this. Whatever. Poor pause. <laughs> because at this moment, I texted Kristen Dwyer, aforementioned <laughs> publicist with a grandma who watches this movie every night, and I was like, justice for Chrissy. Because. Yeah, right. She, poor Chrissy, is going to be destroyed the day after this movie is done. (laughs) And Ronnie comes in, Loretta looking like a dream on his arm. Yeah. Wildly in love. Who is going to make Chrissy happy? Look, Chrissy is a dark romance fan who is, because I was like, her being in love with this like deep, dark man, I was totally like, oh, yeah, no, I thought the same thing. Maybe she can move on. Find a nice man in the neighborhood to give her that dark vibe she needs. Yeah, I want that. Somebody write me the Chrissy book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so then we go to Cosmo. Remodeling the house of these two dummies that now, I presume, live in a gajillionaire's row in Brooklyn. Yeah, these two, like, yuppies (laughs) who moved across the river. I mean, this is is our lives, right? They moved across the river from Manhattan. They've bought a house in Brooklyn. And Cosmo is coming in to look at their pipes. And he's doing a little dance. Yeah, which is like a you need Italian dad. Dance. You need ten thousand dollars worth of pipes because you need copper pipes, and you know. And he gives the whole speech, right? There are three types of pipe. Yeah, there's this, which is garbage, which you can see, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, and then it cuts to him telling the story, and he says, yes. "You gotta spend money." You got to spend money to save money. Right. Which is fascinating because this jerk doesn't want to pay for his daughter's wedding. Right. Of course. Of course. Right. So 
Then it cuts to him telling the story at like a little coffee shop. Yeah, to his mistress. Now, you know what else was interesting about this? It's like Mistress Mona. Mona is like a woman of his own age. Mm-hmm. Like that's the other thing. I thought if they made this movie now, Mona would be like herself would be so young. Yeah. Right? No. She's just a woman of a certain age who is this this man's mistress. Yeah. And he, he gives her the bracelet and he's <laughs> the like, birds, birds and stars. And stars. <laughs> oh, oh my God. It's perfect. This week's episode of Fate of Mates is sponsored by Alexandra Harvey, author of How to Marry a Viscount, a Cinderella Society book number three. So in this one, Sarah, Lady Tamsin Bell is the daughter of a duke, and we know what that means. She has everything she could possibly want. A fine house, exquisite ball gowns, a generous dowry. You know what she does not have? She does not have Captain Henry Talbot. She doesn't. And boy, do these two want each other. And so we need something to throw them together. Artifacts from her private collection go missing. And so she decides, obviously, to go out on the hunt and figure out what's happening. And Henry, who is fresh back from fighting war at sea, decides that he must help her. So the two of them are going to go on quite an adventure. They're going to find happiness. Uh, There's a thief, uh, a wicked earl, and a bully in a tyrant who has never met a Cinderella like Tamsin before. You can read the first two books in the series right now, wherever you get your books, or you can pre-order How to Marry a Viscount, which will be in stores and on shelves October 18th in print and audio and ebook. If you love Regency Daddy vibes, along with a nice little tap of the touch her and die trope this one is for you everybody find alexandra at alexandraharvey.com on twitter at alexandra h or on instagram at alexandra harvey author or as always in show notes thanks to alexandra for sponsoring the episode so we see the cosmo all is not right in the castorini household and it should be said that at this point we kind of know uh, Olympia Dukakis has not spent a ton of time on on screen. Um, so, but she's Olympia Dukakis, so she the amount of time that she has been on the screen has made us love her immensely. Well, and that's I think that's part of it too is the way the the screenplay sort of unfolds. You don't quite understand why her reaction is, you know good when she, you know, if you're in love with them, they can hurt you or whatever, because mm-hmm. you're kind of like, wait, what's going on here? And but we also know that, uh, you know, if you love a man, he'll drive you crazy because he knows he can. That's, that's the piece of advice that we've received. Then we cut back to Loretta and Johnny in his apartment. Loretta and Ronnie. Ronnie. You know, Johnny, Ronnie. I mean, who did that? So they're in Ronnie's apartment up above the bakery. Yeah. Which is tight. Also, here's a moment where I just want to say... At some point, and it's probably right about here, where it really starts, it becomes very clear that John Patrick Shanley is a Pulitzer Prize winner at, for plays. Yeah. Because the movie starts to, I mean, like, you yeah. you at some point have a realization that you could easily be watching a play. Yeah, and I think you're right. For me, it's something about the way these scenes not our stage necessarily, but also like the the dialogue, right? Like it it doesn't really feel always like the way people really talk to it's each other. It's not right? cinematic, right? It's not. Right. It's like it's dramatic. It's the most. It it makes you sort of feel like you're in a theater. 
like a watching watching a brilliant play. Well, and it's also the moment we we get this glimpse that like Ronnie is maybe more than we thought he was, right? Because he loves like the operas playing, like there's an album on the turntable, and yeah. it's this like kind of like sun washed apartment out of time. Like what kind of wh- where are they? What th- this is? A- and then did you notice he has canaries? Did you notice that? He has birds in a cage. And I was like, what's happening here? Like, yeah. I mean, the whole thing, right? Or even like this poster of, was it Les Mis? I can't remember. Of like La Boheme. La Boheme, yeah. And the whole thing is just, you're kind of like, wait, what's happening now? Right? And then she's Where like. Where are we? Yeah. So she's fixing him a steak. And I was like, was it just in the fridge? Like, I have so many questions. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So, but this is the best part. Because she said, he's like, what do I smell? And she's like, I'm making you a steak. Yeah. And she said, and he says, I don't want a steak. She's like, too bad I'm making you a steak. Like, it's so Loretta-y. Like, she's like, I am, like, just let me take care of you. And uh, and she said, and he says, I want it well done. And she says, well, you'll eat this one bloody to feed your blood. Yep. <laughs> which, like, which sort of goes back to this, like, there's bad blood between us. Like, Loretta is going to turn... Ronnie right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And like she's gonna start by cooking a mistake. I yes. just wanna say also, there is something food comes like there is a lot of food in this in this movie. And I mean, obviously, like it's an Italian movie. There's a lot of sure. food, right? Um, but like the way food is prepared in this yeah. movie and consumed in this movie is really fascinating. There's, you know, at the very beginning, the first moment that we see um, Olympia Dukakis and Cher talk, uh, and Loretta, um, whatever, Loretta and her mom talk in the kitchen. It's, um, she's making, like, eggs in a toast with, like, a breakfast, like, really delicious breakfast. It's a Red hole. peppers. Yeah. And then, um... You know, there's sugar. There's always sugar in the champagne, which is like a very like Italian like dad thing, and it makes it foam. So it's funny because my mom was telling me the story the other day. We, my family is not Italian, but like a champagne cocktail. If mm. you had like just like a a plain glass of white wine and added a sugar cube, it would like look like champagne. And ah. like my mom was telling me the story about how when she. Like, one of the last times she and her brother took my grandma out before she died, my grandma, like, ordered a champagne cocktail because she's like, it was the anniversary of, like, my first date with your grandfather how many of those years ago, and that's what we had. And my mom had explained to the waitress, like, what it was. Like, just bring her, like, wine in a champagne glass and add a sugar cube. And I was like, isn't that interesting? Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't know what it was either, right? But it was it, so it was funny to me to watch them. I know we're right adding sugar cubes to champagne. I'm like, but it's already bubbling. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's just like it's a fancy little thing or like a little yeah. it's like a little trick. And then there's like coffee. And then when we we have to get to the aunt and uncle and like that whole scene with the aunt and uncle in the moon. Yes. But um, you know, afterward, like he calls for minestrone. <laughs> like he's just there's so much yeah. food. Yeah. And so the steak. And then, and then it happens. Then, well, so she tells him the story about, because he was like, why are you hanging my brother? Like, he already knows that you're not right. Right. This is not This is not right. Something's wrong here. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. And so this is when we get the full story about the bus, right? And the bad luck. And 
Yeah, right. And and that she's just going to do it the right way now. And he is completely like <laughs> – you can tell as she continues to tell the story, which it's like one of those great scenes where you're sort of watching someone say out loud the internal story they've been telling themselves about how their life worked out the way it did. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, none of – he just doesn't want to accept any of it. And I don't remember – I will admit to you, all I the, – the thing I love about the scene is he essentially, like, stands up and literally flips the table. Oh, wait, but before we get there, come back to that. Because before we get there, she says – You can't see what you are, and I see everything. You're a wolf. I'm a wolf? Yeah. You're – the, the big part of you has, has no words, and uh, it's a wolf. Because she's basically like, you didn't want that life. Right, right. You chewed off your own foot to get out of that life that you were in. Yeah. And he says, and this is perfect, he says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm telling you your life. And he says, stop it. Yeah. Because it's that moment in a romance where, like, the characters see each other. Yes. And then, right, go ahead. Well, here so, it is. So the moneymaker. <laughs> he flips, stands up and flips the table. And in one of my favorite moments, before he grabs her, he like runs his hands through his hair. <laughs> and then he just grabs her and kisses her and picks her up. And she says, where are you taking me? To the bed. <laughs> right? <laughs> and the whole scene is like... Where is, okay, so, like, the next day we talked about already seems to last a thousand years. Mm-hmm. This day, where did it go, right? She's seeing him first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. But then, like, there they are. She's, you know, making a mistake, and they're in bed, and I'm like, it's 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes to them to the next morning, right? She's gone all night. Right. And so I think the thing, too, about, like, time having, like, time when they're together is so fulsome, but then mm-hmm. when, right, otherwise it's just, like, has no meaning. I don't know. It's really interesting to think about the, the difference in these two days. Yes. Okay. But here's what I'm going to suggest. That day is stolen by the moon, right? Time is elided by the moon because we leave them in the bed. Right. 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 Having a great time. <laughs> but we go to... Cosmo and Rose's house. Right. Where they are eating with Rita and Raymond. Yes. And the grandfather. Mm-hmm. And it's revealed there, um, Raymond, who is... So, okay. Cosmo and Rose are married. They're Loretta's parents. Rose's brother, Raymond, is uh, married to Rita. Right. Her, his, his wife. And... Over the course of the dinner, two fabulous things happen. <laughs> First of all, the grandfather starts to, like, serves the dogs <laughs> from the table. Oh, man. To give those dogs another piece of my food, I'm going to kick you till you're dead. I'll kick you till you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and he just turns around the plate and comes back to the table. <laughs> and no one blinks. Everyone's just like, okay, fine. But the other thing that happens is Raymond tells a story. And it becomes clear that a long, long time ago, when they fell in love, yeah. Cosmo was wild. 
right. about Rose. Yeah. So wild about Rose that he used to come over in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and like linger outside their house because he just loved her so much he wanted to be close to her. And it's this like magnificent story. And Raymond says, there was a moon one night, you know, the moon yeah. was so big. I'd never seen a moon so big, like a real harvesty moon. Yeah. And it woke me up with the light. Mm-hmm. And I got up and I looked down and Cosmo was standing in the yard, in the street, looking up at the house. And I was mad at him for bringing over the moon. And it's this magnificent moment put in the mouth of a character who is sort of secondary at best at this point, right? Right. And Cosmo says it never happened. Right. Right? In the moment. Vincent Gardenia is the name of this actor, and he's amazing. Like, he's also, everybody's perfect. Everybody's perfect in this movie, yeah. But when he looks up, he sort of says, that never happened. And your heart breaks a little bit when you're watching it. Yeah, right. Because you think... Gosh, like, they really were in love, and he can't see it anymore. Right. And you see Rose knows what's going on. We've talked so extensively about romances that have, like, a great secondary plot, a great secondary romance in them. Mm -hmm. And as a watcher of this movie, it it really doesn't feel like you're like, is this marriage in trouble? Are they going to like work it out? I mean, and that's the part where it really doesn't feel, it just feels sad, right? Like you're just like, oh my gosh. Like, so to set any like sort of budding romance against the stage of this, like one that's dying, you know, you're kind of like, what is going on here? What, how am I supposed to be feeling about this? Is this just like the, you know, the way it works is this just you know and so i found myself really thinking of that that stage too like it's so fascinating because it's hard not to view it as like the is this like the screenwriter or whatever the you know the movie telling us like this is going to be what happens to loretta and ronnie too and then it cuts to later yeah and raymond and rita are in their bedroom and it's nighttime and, the moon and Rita's comes. asleep, and the moon comes up. Yes. This big, full moon. Yeah. And we've seen, like, the grandfather take the dogs out yes. at this point to the Brooklyn Pier mm-hmm. and right near Grimaldi's Pizza, for those of you who are interested, and, the and like, howl at the moon, and we've seen... Loretta and, and Ronnie. we know what's happening with Loretta and Ronnie. But they show us them, too, right? She's out looking at the moon, and he says, he's like, what are you doing? And she's just like, I'm, I'm just looking I've at the moon. I've never seen a moon that big. Yeah. And then Raymond says, it's Cosmo's moon. Yeah. Which, by the way, I say every time a moon is that full <laughs> and that large in the sky. What it's else Cosmo's you moon. And Rita says, it's this beautiful moment. Yeah. And I cry every time. And she says, in that light, you look like you're about 25 years old. Yeah. yeah. And he turns and he's like, he's got- made, he's a wolf. Yeah. He's made wild by the moon. Right. And they have a great night, Raymond and Rita. Good job, everyone. Well, and I guess we should actually, at this point, I think, I guess we missed something really important, which is the first time the wolf kind of imagery gets invoked in the in the movie is in the convenience store. Oh, yeah. Right? So this is, yeah, Rita's just going, or not, um, 
Loretta's just going in to buy a bottle of of wine or something. I can't remember. And um, this woman, it, there's, you know, an older couple are behind the counter. And this woman is like, I saw the way you were looking at her, right? Like, I saw the wolf in you. And he is like, what are you talking about? And mm-hmm. she's like, I've seen the wolf in everyone I've ever met. And I see the wolf in you. And this is, like, the first time, right? So when Loretta brings up the wolf to to Ronnie, she's essentially, like, retelling, like, repackaging a little bit of the story that she heard earlier in the day or the right. night before. So I think this is, like, the thing, too, like, right, the wolf, the moon, all of this is so, like, carefully woven into the whole fabric of the story. Oh, so good. And all that bad, all the blood, the bad yes. blood, the, like, we're right. going to fix your blood and you're right. going to eat it bloody. right, right. Her blood red dress. I mean, all of it, right? Yeah. So then the next morning comes, and this is the famous movie, the, the famous moment that everybody talks about in this movie, where he sa- she says, you ruined my life. That's <laughs> impossible, he says. It was ruined when I got here. And, she, and then he says he loves her, and she smacks him twice. Snap out of it! And then he says, I'll leave you alone forever. She's like, no, I'm getting married. This was one mistake. This is, right. It was one night, right? The full moon made me do it. Yes. She doesn't say that, but the full moon made implied, her do it. Right. And it was one night, and I'm going to marry your brother, and you're not going to come to the wedding because you can't come to the wedding. And he says, all right, I'll leave you alone forever. If you do one. But I want the opera and the woman I love together one night come to the opera with me tonight. Is this the first? Doesn't she kind of hide in his closet, and then like later at her house, she's yeah. hiding in her this parents' is when she closet? Says, you ruined my life, yeah. <laughs> right, like, and I found myself this whole thing about like hiding who you are, being your real like, because this is the other part of what I love about this movie is it's just this. I don't know, like, the way that all of this, like, stacks up, right? You have all these different characters now who are essentially, like, keep going to be keeping a secret that night, right? Loretta is going to go to the opera with this man she shouldn't be with. Her father is going to be at the opera with this woman he shouldn't be with. Her mother ends up having dinner with Frazier's dad at the restaurant. John Mahoney, <laughs> a perfect cast also. Right? And, you know, they all are going to, like, it's it's almost like farce. Like, I found myself thinking, again, like, it's not like a movie at this point. It's like a play. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Lumi Labs, the creators of Microdose Gummies. Microdosing and the concept of microdosing is commonly associated with psychedelics, wellness, performance enhancement, and creativity. And if you're looking to um, boost your creativity or figure out a way to just, like, kind of calm down in this world that we seems to be kind of not calm at all or you know in Jen's case she uses it to help her sleep it's true you can try microdose gummies because they are available nationwide Um, you get them delivered right to your door and uh, to learn more about microdosing THC you can just do a quick search online or you can go to microdose.com and use the code FATEDMATES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order links will are always as with all of our sponsors in the show notes but again that's microdose.com and code FATEDMATES Thank you to Microdose Gummies for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. So Cher goes to Cinderella Beauty Shop, which is named, listen, that is not a 
that is not just like by chance that is named Cinderella Beauty Shop. Of course not. She has one night with this full moon and this man to play princess, right? And then she has to go back yeah. to her normal life. Right, right. Um, and then, as Jen said, as you said, like all of this stuff. Although I do like that she like comes out and like runs into some nuns. <laughs> like just feel a little guilt right there, right? So listen, there is a moment I'm gonna find. I wish I could cite it. Um, I will find it and we'll put it in show notes. But there is a great, great, great analysis of this movie where somebody talks about the fact that this moment mm-hmm. is like a seminal moment for cinema and women and the female gaze. And I think this is really fascinating because it's not like other glow-up montages Mm. where there's, like, a community of people who are like, oh, you look beautiful, you look beautiful, like, lifting you up. Cher walks out of the beauty salon, looks in the reflection, her reflection in in the glass, and sees herself as beautiful, right? She sees what she can be. And there's something really, like, self-empowering about that moment. And I love that analysis. Like, there's no one else. Right. Well, and it's interesting because there are some men there. But she doesn't really pay attention to them. Right? No. They don't matter. They notice her, but she doesn't need them to notice her. Right. Exactly. And there's something great about that. I mean, and it's a class. It's Loretta, right? She's a great character. Like, she knows herself. Right. Right. Then she goes home and has the, like, Vaseline around the edges scene where she, like, sits by the fire and admires her new clothes. Very weird. I did find myself thinking—I don't—maybe we don't have to talk about it, but I did find myself, like, thinking, like, why is this here? And I guess it is, to me, it was related to this. Like, right? Like, she knows what she's doing and is going to do it anyway, right? She's—maybe. But, yeah, I was—and also I was like, how does she have time for this? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) She does not have time to light a fire, everybody. <laughs> it was, it's weird. Yeah. It's a whole, it's just a very odd little moment. It's like a moment to show Cher taking off her shirt. It's like the one misstep. Yeah. Feels. Anyway. Um, so then she goes to the opera. So, and here's where the movie splits, right? Yes. Cher goes to the opera with Nicolas Cage. Something, and then there's going to be a thing there. Yeah. And Olympia Dukakis decides she's going to take herself to dinner alone because she know. Oh, we missed the part where they went to confession. Yes, she right. also puts confession into that big long day. Like she fits confession in. She had a lot. Of, she did a lot. She goes to confession. She picked <laughs> up money great. from the grocery store. She went to confession. Yeah. She wear, like, <laughs> she's like she's very busy, and she comes out of the confessional. She in confession. She says, once I slept with the fiancé of my, or my, the brother of my fiancé. She fiance. really tries it's to amazing. bury it, yeah. Yeah, twice I took the Lord's name in vain, once I slept with the brother of my fiancé. Right. <laughs> and then, like, I forget what the third one was, but that was and really He's like, go back to that middle one. <laughs> anyway, she comes out, and Olympia Dukakis is mother. sitting in a pew. And she sits next to her, and Olympia Dukakis says, Cosmos having an affair. Yeah. When, where were, and where were you all night? Right. I oh yeah. She, for you. Co- she covered for her because she lives there. She, I mean, she's a grown ass woman, but she does live with her parents. Well, it's also I, one of my favorite parts in this movie too. And I'm sorry because we t- you talked about it earlier. Like her, she's cooking breakfast because we've seen her interactions with her mom are, are start off as very short and they get like longer and longer as time goes on. Right. So the first one is just like waking her up, and then there's the breakfast. And now there's this scene. But the breakfast, she, her mom's like, are you and Johnny going to live here? And she's like, no. Dad hates him. 
And it's kind of this really interesting thing where it's you're like, oh, this was like on the table for her, like co- you know, completing the multi generational yeah. household, have a baby, come, have a baby, be come home, a baby. right? And then in this scene, it's even longer, right? Like now we're getting more. Like I've covered for you. You didn't come home last night. Your father doesn't know, but he's having an affair. And she really says, like, no, you're over, yeah. like you're wrong. No Dad's way, not having an affair. Off she goes to the opera. Sure enough, dad's having an affair. So the opera's yeah. beautiful. Every Look, there's also a hand piece here for those of you who don't know La Boheme. At the end of Act 4, it's, the, it's an opera. Everybody dies. <laughs> um, I mean, not everybody, but Mimi, the heroine of the opera, dies. Yeah. Before you get to the actual inside the opera, when they're looking for each other on the plaza. <gasps> She's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I yeah. wrote it down. My yes. note literally says she is the most beautiful yes. thing I've ever seen. And she's looking for him, and he's looking for her, and he's sort of turning around and looking, and she's turning around and looking, and they're, like, missing each other. And he's so handsome in his, like, tuxedo, and and then they see each other, and it's just— It's it's, perfect. It really is. It's perfect. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to come back to the opera because— so then while yeah. they're at the opera, it's clear to we know Cosmo and Mona are, are also, also there. at the opera, right? <laughs> Mona wearing really like a killer pink dress. Oh yeah, she looks great. Freezing cold. Yeah. Um so and then there is and they get through the whole thing. Yeah. Um, because they had to, right? So, like, the whole opera happens. Cher is so moved by it. She's never been to the opera. It's magnificent. They're leaving, and she runs into her father. What I loved about this moment is she has no... She doesn't... She's like, Dad. Like, essentially, like, a pop. I can't remember what she says. But she. I remember thinking, like... She herself is with someone she shouldn't be with, and yet she cannot – she so can't believe what she sees that it, like, kind of bursts out of her, right? Yep. Um, there's no sense that she should, like, observe or, like, see what's really going on. And I think, obviously, it's because her mother has, like, primed the pump for her earlier, and here she is. She's just like, what is, what is going on? Yep. And, you know, it's cute because we saw them, like – she walked past Mona like, um, I don't know, rouging, rouging her, her decolletage. Her yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you say that word. Decolletage, decolletage, right? Better word. Yeah, yeah for what she's doing. Correct. And then you know he, uh, then uh, her father kind of is next to Ronnie ordering drinks. So you kind of have this hint, like, oh, are they going to just miss each other? But then at the end, they right? don't. They don't. And then there's that moment where he says, "I didn't see you here." Yeah. Because first he says, I don't want you running around like a putana, yeah. which is a bad word. It means whore. Yeah. And she says, and she kind of looks at him like, excuse me? Yeah. Like, what? Who are and, you to talk? Yeah. And then he says, all right, I didn't see you here. Yeah. And she says, I don't know if I saw you here or what. Right. 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 Yeah. And, uh, and then, and there's kind of a moment there where it feels like, oh, everything it, like, right. there is a part of me that's, like, poor Olympia Dukakis who, like, knows this shit is happening yes. and no one is validating her. And, like, here's this thing happening. But that's, like, a separate thing. And then because – and I think it's so perfect because it could land that way. Mm-hmm. Like, Loretta's betraying her mom in some way. Right. Except, except, simultaneous to this. Yeah. 
Olympia Dukakis has gone to take herself to dinner. Yeah. And John Mahoney, who is Fraser's dad. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. So I am. <laughs> um, but also, like, a superior... Um, Eric pointed out to me, his name is Perry in the movie. That's the character's name. And Eric really was like, listen, you can't just call him Fraser's dad. Oh, yeah. He's so, well, I I did find myself also thinking, like, two nights ago, he had a similar breakup with this. He has, like, a whole string of these young girls he's dating, right? Listen, he's great. That, again, these kind of moments that feel out, they don't relate to the story, and they, like, really pull everything together. Yeah. So he a serial dater of young women. He's in yes. New York. He's a NYU professor. He like, and he call. He's again. Here yeah. we go. Right, this moonlight. He says to her. So Olympia Dukakis watches him with this other this right. young woman who like is annoyed with him and throws her drink in his face. And then he's all alone. This has happened once before. Right. We have seen it happen, but Olympia Dukakis has not. Right. And she's like, and he looks at her and says at the next table, and he says, I'm sorry if I'm disturbing, disturbing you. And he, she's like, you're fine. Don't worry about it. And then she says, would you like to have dinner with right. me? So he comes and sits with her, and he tells her his story. Yeah. And then he says, the girls are fresh and bright as moonlight in a martini. Yep. Yeah. And so he can't resist, like, the appeal. Yeah. Right? And this is the first time we hear Olympia Dukakis ask the question, which is, <laughs> why do men why chase do women? Why do men chase women? And he doesn't have a good answer. Of course not. And she says, I think it's because they fear death. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> She's so perfect. She's and like, so these, yeah. These two have this, like, great dinner yeah and he walks her home yeah to 19 cranberry street and they pass the grand the grandfather is a lot of other <laughs> stuff that goes on and she gets there they get there and he says to her yeah i don't suppose you'd invite me in yeah and she's like no here's the thing i thought a lot about in the scene and she's kind of like and she says because and she tells him because i know who i am But later that same night, Loretta tells Nick Cage, I know what I know. And I found myself thinking a whole lot about, like, how the women in this movie are primed for the viewers as, like, the people who know and understand and think things, right? I know who I am. I know what I know. Versus the men, I mean, it's very much like Lord of Scoundrels to me, right? Who are the ones that are just, like... Bowling balls yeah, of emotion. Cars. Yeah. Just yeah. all over the place. You know, I don't, I can't bear with my feelings, so I'm just going to go do things. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so this moment, that whole scene is just electric. That's yeah, And perfect. I read this article about, and I'll, we'll put it in show notes, about the making of Moonstruck and how Jewish, Norman Jewish and the director, who also, again, Again, like a cl- a director's director, he yeah. directed lot. He's directed lots of movies that you have absolutely heard of, right? Um, like in the Heat of the Night and the Thomas Crown Affair, and you know, whatever, lots of other things. Um, so, like a guy who knows the job, um, that he filmed that whole scene with the kind of sense that maybe it would come out, the, yeah, right. The dinner with Olympia Dukakis and John Mahoney, and. Uh, and uh, it didn't because it's so, so it's like so it's good. electric. These yeah. two together, and it's just cla- like 
it's a moment when you like there are there are moments when even I don't know anything about acting, but there are moments when you see something like this and you think, oh, that's yeah, that's like something. Good there's something <laughs> on stage, right? There's something that's happening yeah. that between the two of them. And this is also like the night of big speeches, right? Like because. So she like her whole like I know what I know and his his speech about like why he likes these young women right and and then we get J- M- Ronnie's speech about about love Loretta I love you not not like they told you love is and I didn't know this either but love don't make things nice it ruins everything it breaks your heart. It makes things a mess. We we aren't here to make things perfect. The, the snowflakes are perfect. The stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and and to break our hearts and love the wrong people and and die. I mean that the storybooks yeah. are bullshit. And I just I mean perfect. It's per it is perfect, right? Because he's he's very aware that like there's no there're no promises, but contrast that to the man at the beginning who was like I lost my hand, I lost my bride. I'm no monument <laughs> yeah. to justice. Yeah. And now he's like no, now I understand. I get it. Now I get, I get it. it, right? So, can we just for a moment talk about the opera? Yes. Because I think so the opera they chose it's it's La Boheme and of course, it's La Boheme for anybody who knows the opera. Um, first of all, hands are very important in La Boheme. Um, the, at the end of the whole thing, there's, um, like, first of all, there, there's this, there are moments throughout where uh, the, the um, hero and Rodolfo is, um, so the main characters are Rodolfo and Mimi, and Rodolfo talks about her hands. And when she's dying of tuberculosis at the end, (laughs) sure, as Cher said, I didn't think she would die. And he says, she had tuberculosis. And she was like, all the coughing. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) So, okay, when she's dying, at the end, he holds her hands, like, she's, her hands are cold, right? And there is, like, this moment, so this cold, suddenly, like, all the magic of this, like, bright, beautiful opera, like, this life, which is about, like, artists, and, like, obviously they're all starving artists, and everybody's going to die of something in this in this uh, opera. By the end, all the heat is gone from yeah, it, right? right? Because this is life. This is, this is life returning, right? You yeah. can't have love forever. Right. And what's fascinating is they leave the opera, and suddenly everyone is cold. Yes. Right? It's the first time, and, like, nobody talks about, like, how they feel physically. Like, nobody's talking about whether they're warm or cold for the rest of it. But for an entire, the rest of that night, it's like the moon is done. Yes. The moon is no longer magical. You guys are on your own. And everyone is cold. Right. And, um, and it starts to snow. Mm -hmm. And you start to really feel like tomorrow morning is going to be a reckoning. And tomorrow morning is a reckoning. And it's interesting because Cher still spends, goes up with him, right? This is your place, there, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's a, I really loved how, 
it's, I feel, and look, I'm guilty of this. Like I want like a nice clean progression of like emotional growth in a, in a book, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, right, the way she's, like, literally, I guess, like, blowing hot and cold, right? Like, she's going to go up with him. She's going to tell him no. She's going to tell him yes. I mean, this is how people really are, mm-hmm. right? There's not this sense of, like, oh, I know what I want and now it's okay, right? Like, there's this internal struggle that gets put on put on this screen really effectively here. And so she's, like, we're at your place. Like, I wanted to go home. And, of course, mm-hmm. we're, like, you are home, Loretta. <laughs> <laughs> this man is your home now. And, you know, she goes in and... And, like, the door just closes behind them. And then, like, the reckoning it is. It's, like, right, it's the next morning. And she's walking home in a full face of makeup. Bless. Kicking the can Kicking the can. It's magical. It is. It's such a magical moment. It is actually the image on the poster. Yes. From Moonstruck. Right. In her her beautiful dress and shoes. It's beautiful, right? But she is Cinderella. Like, now she has to choose. When we talk about the dark moment in romance, right? The moment where this is this is what we're talking about, right? Like there's no truly dark moment in this in this movie, right? Like we know this is all going to sort itself out. She's definitely not going back to Johnny after the opera right. in this no. night, right? Like but this is a sort of little perfect moment like when we say like there doesn't have to be a third act breakup, what we're saying is there doesn't have to be like a crash to the ground Sarah McLean style third act breakup. This is a third act breakup in that there is a moment here. She is kicking the can down the street and Loretta has to choose. Loretta has to choose. Loretta of before or Loretta of the future? Well, and what she doesn't realize, what we do know, is that Johnny is back. He has arrived at her home the night before and talked to her mother. Wait. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Why do men chase women? Okay, so Olympia Dukakis says, no, Perry, you can't come in. I know who I am, right? right. She comes in. The doorbell rings. <laughs> it's Johnny Camareri with his suitcases straight it's, from the it's, airport. It's Johnny Camareri. <laughs> That's not how Loretta says it. That's how no, Rita says it later. Rita, yeah, Rita <laughs> so what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> so... Anyway, I mean, that whole, I want to talk about that whole scene, but anyway, so Johnny comes in and he sits down with her. Yeah. She says, sit with me. I have a question for you. Right. And we're like, whoopsies about, listen, you're not ready for this question. here, right? And she, she says, why do men chase women? And he says... He gives her a bunch of bullshit first, right? But then he's like, I don't know, maybe they oh, fear yeah, death. Oh, yeah, the rib. He yeah. says, Adam the rib, and he misses the rib, and she's just we're like. chasing the rib. She's like, come on now. Because I'm Olympia Dukakis. You can't bullshit me. It's <laughs> like, maybe they fear death. And she's like, finally, right? Yes. Like, I've been waiting for someone. I never thought it would be this ding-dong that would confirm my theory. And then Cosmo comes in. Yeah. From the opera. She doesn't know he was at the opera, but she knows he was with Mona. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't know Mona exists, but. She knows. She knows. Yeah. And he comes in and she says, Cosmo, you're going to die just like everybody else. (laughs) He's like, thanks. (laughs) Nice. I love you too, Rose. Right? Yeah. (laughs) She knows what she's really saying, right? He doesn't know at that moment what she's saying. No. But tomorrow morning, there will be a reckoning. Oh. Over in oatmeal. comes Loretta. Yeah. Dancing into the kitchen. In the morning, right, Cox exactly. like, oh my God. This. You've got a love bite. <laughs> yeah. Cover it up. Johnny's coming over this morning. 
He's in Palermo. His mother's dying. She's better now. <laughs> it's perfect. How I literally at some point I'm like, how many? I don't actually think there's enough hours for him to fly back and forth, but fine. So now, allegedly, according to this article that I read about the making of Moonstruck, this particular scene, and when you hear this, it will make perfect sense, was a total nightmare to film. Well, it has to be that way, right? Because you have, it's like these layers coming in, right? So first, mm-hmm. just to It really again. feels like a play. I mean, it, this is, it's a play. Yeah. So first, it's Loretta and her mother. And then it's... The doorbell rings and Ronnie And comes Ronnie in. comes in. Because he's followed her home. Yeah. True romance hero. Right. He was like, you know what? No, I'm no, going. I'm going to be with her. And, you know, of course, he's like, I love how he's like, Mrs. Castorina, I'd love some oatmeal. Like, he knows, <laughs> right, immediately the job of being the future good boyfriend, mm-hmm. but good husband, right? Then is it Cosmo that comes in next? Cosmo comes in. They start to eat. They all sit down to eat. <laughs> Cosmo. And no, this is so good. She looks up and she says, now remember, yeah. in comes Cosmo. Cosmo knows who Ronnie is. Yes, right. Because he met him last night. I saw him at the opera, right. Loretta knows everything. Is the grandfather in yet? He comes in next. Okay. So Rose says, have I been a good wife? Yeah. And instantly, I mean, Eric next to me on the couch was like, oh, no. <laughs> Right? I mean, you can see everybody. And you know what? The grandfather has come in and give, said his piece about you have to pay for you the wedding. pay for the wedding. Right? So then he sits down, and everybody is like, oh, God, what am I going to do? Can I, like, escape the earth right now? Because this is going down at the breakfast table over oatmeal? Yeah. Have I? It's so Italian, by the way. This is this whole <laughs> moment. So have I been a good wife? I want you to stop. He says, yeah, you've been a good wife. She says, I want you to stop seeing her. Yeah. And go to confession. Yes. And he and my father used to do this fucking nightly. There was like a, we used to joke, there was like a divot in the dining room table. He slams his hands on the table, stands up, (laughs) says nothing, sits back down. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And then he says, yeah. and this is the part that I didn't write down, but it's something like, Someday you realize your life is built a man, on nothing. A man realizes. A man realizes his life is built on nothing. Yeah. And she looks him dead in the eye and she says, your life oh. is not built on nothing. Yeah. And then she says, te amo. Te amo. Which means I love you. Mm. And I'm water working. Of course. <laughs> Me too. And he says, anchio te amo. And that means I love you too. And now that's done. Right. It's done. Right? Like, it's like a little perfect romance miracle. Yes. Like, right. That's done now. So in- Ding dong. Well, Rita and Raymond have to Rita come Rita and next. Raymond. <laughs> and, you're, and we as the, are like, wait, this is not who I expected. I thought it'd be Johnny, right? Like, and again, it feels like a farce, right? Like, it's like just more and more layers getting added. I mean, added. it is. It's yes. like classic- it's classic farce. In fact, what I was saying, what I was going to say when I read this thing was apparently that older man, the the grandfather, mm-hmm. um, when he was being cast, uh, there he had been in a movie with with uh, Sean Connery. Okay. And Sean Connery, the Norman Jewison called Sean Connery and said, we're thinking of casting this old dude. Yeah. 
like in the in the movie. And Sean Connery said he can't see anything, he can't hear anything, but damn it if he isn't going to steal every scene that he's in. <laughs> right? And he does. And like, so they cast him. Apparently in this scene, it's like Cher and um, Nicolas Cage weren't, like, working well together because he was, like, a method, like, wacky method actor at 24. <laughs> and she was like, can we just please, like, yeah, hold do this. this all together? And then every, so there were lots of, like, interior, like, dramas. Yeah. Sure, fine. Um, and so, and every, nobody really, everybody thought this was going to be a failure. Apparently, like, Cher herself was like, this is going to, this is going to be a failure. Wow. Because Norman Jewison was a director who, um, like George Miller, who did Mad Max, held the whole thing in his own head. Oh, yeah, sure. So, like, they couldn't see what he was doing. So, but this man, this apparently this older man, <laughs> in the middle of this scene, like, they had been doing it for, for, like, two days or something. Like, they couldn't get it right. And he finally said, it's a farce. We all have to play it like yeah. it's a farce. Yeah. And then, so anyway, I just wanted to add that little piece of truth. Yeah, so, like, Rita and Raymond come in, and they're kind of, like, looking at Loretta, like, how's it going? And she's like, fine. She's like, and then they finally say, like, we've just been to the bank. And Loretta's like, yeah, so, and she's like, oh, my God, the bank, I forgot to take the deposit. She forgot right? to make the deposit. Right, because she taken, picked up money from it's the It's like a little minor thing, like. Yeah, but it's, what I, I kept thinking about is, get it gets, like, everyone has to be at the end, at the end, right? Yeah, but it also is the final nail in the coffin of old Loretta. Yes. Right? Like, old Loretta would never, never have forgotten, right? Yeah, like, they can't even imagine, right? Although it's really funny because at one point Raymond's like, we didn't even suspect you of anything. <laughs> like, yeah. Right? Eric, Eric's like, mm-hmm. I think they did. <laughs> I think they came like, over. We right. rushed over. <laughs> well, because it's their business, right? Like, the deposit's missing. And so um, what's then so great is... They all start eating, and Rita's like, what are we doing? And, and yeah, Rita's like, just standing there. She's like, like, what are we doing? doing? Waiting for Johnny Camerary. <laughs> and then the doorbell rings, and, and Rita's like, no one moves. And then Rita's like, I'll I guess get I'll it. go. She's so light on her feet. It's like she skips out, right? And then she, like, slides back into the kitchen. And, and like, I say this all the time, it's Johnny Camerary. Like, the way she, like, <laughs> sings it. Like, like I have brought in the final set piece. Now it's going to happen. Drama. Right? This, let's watch what's going to happen. Because, listen, nobody likes drama like a big Italian family. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Loretta even, like, is offered an out when Johnny's like, I'd like to talk to you alone. She's like, no, I need my family with me now. And I'm it's like you do. I would not have said that, but okay. Oh, and he sees his brother and says, "Have you come to make peace with me?" And Ronnie's like, "Yeah, but kind of." But then I'm going to start a new feud a second later. So, <laughs> so then he says, "Well, I'm here to tell you, Loretta, I can't marry you because it's been it's a miracle." Yes. <laughs> My mother is like, I told She's her. She's recovered. She recovered, and now, I don't know. She got up morning, out of bed like, and started stupid, cooking like, me breakfast. boy nonsense. Yes. And Loretta is furious. <laughs> and listen, same. <laughs> She's like, this is a contract. She's pointing to, oh, we missed the part where he didn't have a ring, so he used his signet ring. Right, right. right. And so he's like, I'm going to have to ask for my, my favorite my ring, ring back. back. <laughs> And Ronnie's like, what are you talking about, Loretta? Like, this is great for us. She is 
furious. <laughs> she has uh, been wronged. Yeah. And yes. And then, um, and then of course, like he, so she gives his ring back. And she says, "My fa- one of my favorite lines in the movie, in time, you'll drop dead and I'll come to your funeral in a red dress. <laughs> I know. And then Ronnie says, Loretta, will you marry me? Yeah. 48 hours after meeting her for the first yes. time. Yes. Sure. And she's like, where's the ring? <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, I, I guess right, you, right? Ju- you dumb brothers don't know anything. Right? And so he borrows Johnny's ring. Right back, yeah. And then... Loretta, um, Olympia Takakis says... You love him, Loretta? Ma, I love him awful. Oh, God, that's too bad. It's so great. And then everybody lives happily ever after, except Chrissy. Well, and maybe, you know, maybe Chrissy she has a future with Perry. <laughs> Perry. Perry and Chrissy. <sighs> no. Chrissy so, deserves better. anyway, it's magical. It's a perfect romance novel. Everything serves the romance. Yeah. The writing is so good. Yeah. I want a magical moon. I liked all that moon stuff, as you can imagine. Yeah. Everybody's a wolf. (laughs) It's sort of the perfect, listen, it's a Halloween movie. (laughs) See, there you go. Spooky stuff. Yeah. It's magic. It's a magic movie. It's a movie about magic. Yeah. If you, I, it's, and it's one of those things where I, it's, I'm always really interested in the, like the things that sort of stay watchable or stay relevant. You know, I mean, there were lots of movies I loved back in the 80s. Every once in a while, you'll see like a, like a list going around of like, these movies were so important. And I'm kind of like, that's not the one I watch over and over again. I've seen Moonstruck a million times. I mm-hmm. never once went back and watched, you know, The Lost Boys. Different movie, though. <laughs> anyway, Cher carries this movie is what I decided after the end of this. I mean, like, she, without Cher, this is not the same movie. I don't think, I actually don't think Nicolas Cage is that great in it, but I think she is so great in it that it just all is perfect. Um, and Olympia Dukakis and Vincent uh, Gardenia and John Mahoney. I mean, like, it's just every side character is so, so perfect. Perfect. And it makes you want to go, you know, eat red sauce. Mm, it does. <laughs> it does. Howl at the moon. It did yeah. not make me want to take six, dog, six dogs for a walk, but that's okay. No. Nothing, oh, whatever. can we just, men- can I mention that too? What, it's, it, you know, it's also just, it's perfect. It's perfect writing. So it begins at the funeral parlor, right? Where Loretta is yes. doing the books and the funeral director comes out of the thing and he's so proud of his job. He just does a great job. And there's this dead body. Like the, there's a wake going on or a funeral going on. And then about three quarter or about a halfway through, the grandfather takes the dogs for a walk into a cemetery where there is a fresh body in the ground. And he has a conversation with all his Italian buddies. Yeah. You're right. About, like, how to be a dad. Like, what yes. he can speak to and what he can tell his son to do. And it's this kind of, and ultimately, of course, it's about whether or not Cosmo should pay for the wedding and right. blah, blah, blah. Right? Right. But it's such a perfect, seamless, this dead body that seems like it's irrelevant. Because, you know, we walk away from the funeral parlor and we never see that guy again. Right. But, like. The body carries through. Everything about the writing of this is so clean. 
And, you know, I mean, I guess that's how you win a Pulitzer Prize. It is. But yeah, even, and that's it. I think the part two is, I, I, and I'm glad we talked so much about side characters because I, look, and I'm on record in a romance. I'm like, just keep me on the A game, right? But every single one of these characters is their own person, right? Like they are so, it, the, the ways in which like the, the skill it takes to like show me a real group of like well-developed characters when they're small scenes. Right. But every, every character gets their moment to sort of like kind of explain the way they view the world. Even the grandfather at that with his old friends is like, kind of like, I'm worried I haven't raised my son. Right. Right. And this is like, I, I guess I, I remember when I was younger thinking like, but he's a grown up, but like now I get it. <laughs> Right? Like, now I get it. Like, you still parent your kids no matter how old they are. And, you know, the 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 fact that, like, he cannot, like, let that stand. Like, this is your responsibility to your daughter and you have the money. And, you know, like, Olympia Dukakis, everyone gets their moment to sort of explain, like, this is the way I see the world. And then we see them, like, just all click right into place in that last scene. It's amazing. It's really perfect. So it won... You know, Olympia Dukakis won the Academy Award, Cher won the Academy Award, John Patrick Shanley won the Academy Award, um, Norman Jewison did not, um, which is surprising to me. What did win that year? I guess we'd have to look. Uh, the Last Emperor was the movie that year, and Bernardo Bertolucci won. So, you know, Italians representing. <laughs> He probably liked Moonstruck, though. <laughs> well, sometimes the best movie does not win Best Picture. I'm sure you're it's all true. aware of that. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, I'm really glad we did this. Oh, it feels like the right thing to do for our 200th episode. It really does. Um, listen, if you love uh, stuff like this, you should go listen to Learning the Tropes because they do this almost every other week. Some kind of, you know, watching a movie or a TV show. And uh, you can get lots more of this over there. Um, but I'm really excited that we did this this year. And I'm very excited that 200 episodes ago, we discovered that we are mostly fated mates, though Laffy Taffy is you know, we, clearly. If we are sitting together, we. we'd both be happy because I could have all the Laffy Taffy and it would be fine. It would be fine. You could happily, I'll, when I go through, because my daughter, my daughter doesn't eat it either. So when I go through the, the bag, Just this package year, I'll send it up and send it to package. me. Perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyway, um, that is our our 200th episode, everyone. This is Faded Mates. Thanks for listening. For If you've been listening for 200 episodes, we love you. If you've been listening for one episode, we love you. We hope you'll stick around. I'm Sarah McLean. I'm here with my friend Jen Prokop. You can find us at FadedMates.net or uh, on Twitter at FadedMates, on Instagram at FadedMatesPod. If you are political and would like to join us, we are hosting Democratic phone banking every Saturday between now and the election, which is the first week of November. Um, and we would love to have you join us. We are calling into Florida this weekend. And, uh, you know, Florida's a state where good things can happen if we can elect a Democrat to do it, to do the, the business. 
Thanks to this week's sponsors, uh, Seasons of Love from Grand Central, Lumi Labs, and Alexander Harvey. See you next week, everybody. Bobo, the check! By the way, Mr. Jones.